Hi everyone, it's Vicki Basilica from the ASHP section of Clinical Specialists and Scientists. And I'd like you to welcome you to this special episode of Therapeutic Thursdays. Once again, I am excited to share some of the great clinical content that was a part of the 2020 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Please enjoy this highlight and be sure to check back soon for more features. And so when we think about our medications, we have to think about our therapeutic goals. So first of all, we want to change that negative outcome to a positive outcome. We want to improve their academic and social functioning. So this is improving academic performance. We're going to look at report cards as far as evaluating our therapy and um, evaluating our response to therapy. We want to decrease our disruptive behavior, you know, decrease detentions, you know, punishments, timeouts, missed recesses, those sorts of things. Um, we want to help the child increase their attention um, and increase their response inhibition. So again, you know, stopping and pausing and considering all those, um, um, all those uh, potential outcomes from their um, behavior or decisions they're going to be making. Um, we want to improve their family, teacher, and peer relationships, and we want to increase their independence and activities because there are a lot of um, ADHD-specific programs and so forth that have a lot of behavioral planning and so forth, but there's a lot of micromanagement um, that's involved from the parent, the caregiver, the teacher, et cetera. And so we want to make sure that what our plan is, we're allowing that child to increase their, in, their independence, be able to develop those um, key skills and everything that will help them be successful as they move on throughout their life. Um, when we're thinking about medications, um, we want to minimize adverse side effects. We don't want anything that's going to be permanent, um, you know, harmful for the child. Um, we want any side effects to be easily managed or minimized um, and not intrusive throughout their daily life. And ideally, we want to use a, utilize a comprehensive approach. So thinking about medications and counseling and behavioral plans and getting everybody who's involved in raising that child, either at home and school and after school activities, involved in coming up on and using the same plan um, to help them and be successful. And so when we think about our treatment options, um, we have behavior modification therapy alone, we have pharmacologic therapy alone, and we have a combined approach of using behavioral modification pharmacologic therapy. Um, and really when we think about, you know, what is going to be most successful you know, across the board, really that combined approach is going to be um, ideal for most patients. However, it may not be reasonable. There may not be resources in um, particular areas um, of the country or in your state to be able to support um, protect perhaps the behavioral modification piece um, as well. So then we have to think about what is you know, best for the patient and what is our customized plan for them. We do have some guidance, though, from the American American Academy of Pediatrics um, that is based on age groups. So um, there are some general guidelines for school age, preschool age kids. So our younger children ages four and five who are still acclimating to the school environment or more structured learning um, activities and so forth. We have guidelines for elementary and middle school age kids ages six to 11. And we have our adolescent guidelines for ages 12 to 17. Um, since really the environment, the activities to stimuli, um, the degree of independence expectations and so forth really change throughout that period of time um, and we really need to be customizing our therapy as well. So with that I will turn it over to Leah to discuss those treatment guidelines. Thanks. So our American Academy of Pediatrics actually has our set of guidelines for all of these ages that Kim brought out. So for our preschool which is age four 
to the sixth birthday, so four or five years of age. The first line treatment is our evidence-based parent training and behavioral management, which now is just abbreviated as PTBM or behavioral interventions. And here, our PTBM actually has very strong evidence for our preschoolers. These are typically group programs and sometimes insurances will pay for these. Now, we want to try behavioral therapy and try it for a longer period of time. Only after our preschool children have continued moderate or severe dysfunction of any of the symptoms that they have, should we now then consider medication. If we do consider medication, we again have to have criteria that this, these core symptoms have been persistent at least nine months. The dysfunction is occurring in both the home and another setting, and that may be daycare or preschool, and that the dysfunction has not responded appropriately to our behavioral interventions. If medication is warranted, methylphenidate is actually the drug of choice to start in this population. We typically start at a lower dose than other children, and that is due to the different metabolism in our four and five-year-olds. Now, dextromethorphan and non-stimulants are actually not studied in this age group and thus are not in any recommendations. And what is interesting is amphetamines actually have the amphetamine product actually has an FDA indication in this age, but it came through during a time that the FDA um, criteria for approval was not as stringent. So most experts and guidelines actually don't say there's enough or adequate use, um, adequate support to use in this population. So again, if behavioral therapy is not, is not working or working well enough, and we still meet these other criteria, we can use methylphenidate at a lower dose to be initiated in our preschool children. In our elementary and middle school children, that is age six through the 12th birthday, they actually should be prescribed a FDA approved medication with the parent training and behavioral management as well, and or behavioral classroom intervention, preferably all. So again, as Kim was saying, the combination therapy is the best. Stimulants actually have our strongest data. It's a very large effect size. And so we would wanna start with one of these products. When we move to our adolescents that are age 12 to 18 years of age, here the recommendations are to assent for an FDA approved medication. And the primary care clinician is encouraged to prescribe evidence-based intervention or behavioral intervention if available. And this, again, I would say is recommended. We're going to get into some additional behavioral interventions in a second, but both is always better than one likely. Now, adults, where do we prescribe? What are the recommendations? Well, we actually don't have guidelines specific for adults, but if we extrapolate for once our pediatric to the adult world, we would actually just follow similar to our adolescents um, and start with a FDA approved medication, again, likely a stimulant product. Um, now there may be a reason we don't pick a stimulant product. Maybe we have a substance abuse concern by the patient or in the household, and we may go to a non-stimulant at that point. But in general, adults would follow our adolescent um, recommendations as well. So let's look a little further about our evidence-based interventions 
for our behavioral and our educational interventions. These are just some examples. So we have our parent training and behavioral management. Um, we've got back behavioral classroom interventions, but also from the educational aspect, schools, counselors, um, they can utilize individual instructional reports as well as an individual education program or an EIP or a rehabilitation plan, a 504 plan. So you may hear of teachers, counselors, um, administrators talking about one of these potential plans to start for a school-aged child. And these instructional type of interventions actually support instructional activities, including that school environment, the actual class placement, and even instructional placement, as well as behavioral and organizational skills training. So it does encompass all. Most of our studies that actually compare stimulants to our behavioral therapy definitely show that our stimulants have a stronger immediate effect of improving the core symptoms of ADHD. However, parents will comment that the behavioral um, therapies actually are very effective and the behavioral therapies also help the symptoms and function on top of those core symptoms that are being seen. Adolescents dealing with our behavioral type of therapies, they may be effective, but also your parent-adolescent relationship can affect these behavioral therapies. So it's important to understand that, to therefore be able to go in, find out what's best for that patient. But school-based training initiatives are very established and can be very helpful as well. What is important to note is that the positive outcomes of behavioral therapy continue, whereas using our medications, once our medication is stopped, our positive outcomes actually may cease as well. So our optimal therapy are both therapies. Combining them again, it has a small but increased effect size compared to medication alone, but it has been shown when we use combination therapy that our academic outcomes improve, as well as it does better for patients with comorbidities such as anxiety. In addition, parents and teachers who, parents and teachers were much more satisfied with combination therapy for that patient versus a single therapy. And combination therapy may actually allow, or allow us to lower our stimulant drug dose um, versus alone therapy. Now you may be asking, well, where does mindfulness, behavioral therapy such as cognitive training, diet modification, or EEG um, feedback play a role? And actually these type of act interventions have very little or no evidence or no benefit. And so even cannabidiol oil has some anecdotal evidence but has not been studied appropriately so should not be recommended for these populations. Pharmacologically, we're gonna use likely our stimulants first. These are first-line agents. We have different products, methylphenidates and amphetamines, um, and they have the strongest data, the strongest effect size of one over our non-stimulants that have an effect size of 0.7. Atomoxetine tends to have greater um, out outcomes than our extended release guanfacine and our extended release uh, clonidine. Now, our extended release clonidine and our extended release, release guanfacine may also be used as an adjunct agent and, have SB, and has FDA approval for this, but you also may use them alone. 
Bupropion typically is used more in our adult population for ADHD, not in our pediatric population. So when we're starting a therapy, likely we're starting with stimulants. Which one do you pick? Well, actually it, it can be either really. Um, individually, some studies have showed 40% of patients respond to both and 40% of patients respond to one. And what has been studied is maybe could we look at our subtype of ADHD and could that lead us to know which product to start? And actually there's been no correlation of subtype and which stimulant product to start. Our landmark ADHD trial, the multimodal treatment of ADHD study, in that more than 70% of patients responded to methylphenidate and that study comprised children and adolescents. But other studies have actually found 90% of patients will respond to one of the two stimulants. So it's really important to look at, we'll talk about some of the characteristics of the drugs that may help you select as well. But at this point, we could utilize both, except in our, remember our preschool children will always start with our methylphenidate product. Here I've developed a chart for you to show these are our long-acting methylphenidate products. So today we primarily start with our long-acting products. They are in a plethora of delivery systems. Um, some are tablets, some are capsules, and capsules you can open with beads inside. Some are liquids now. We have a whole variety of differences in our delivery system. This leads to our difference in release of these drugs and kinetics. So not all stimulants are alike. Actually, each one is very unique. You need to understand the kinetics of these drugs, the percent of the medication that is immediate release, and the percent of the medication that's a second release or even a third release. So when we take our methylphenidate product, we can take whatever dosage form we're utilizing. Maybe it's a 20 milligram tablet or capsule and 50% is released immediately, 50% is released second, which is a four hour later period, then we would know 10 milligrams is released now, 10 milligrams will be released later on. So this is how we utilize our drugs. Now it may be like, what does that matter? The clinical studies have always showed us that when the drug levels are higher, efficacy is higher. So we actually need to ask patients, when are your ADHD symptoms more troublesome? Do you have issues waking up, getting to school? Do you have issues doing your homework in the afternoon, getting to work, staying focused at work? We need to figure that out. That will help us figure out which product will match better for when our symptoms need the most control. These are our long-acting amphetamine products. Um, there are several again in liquid, tablets, and our um, capsule formulations. And here we also have a product that has a third release as well. So again, a variety of products, and it's very important to understand these type of products as well. Many of them are newer, coming out in the last five years or so. And so that is important to consider as well when we look at um, what's available, what's cost prohibitive, and then yet what will provide us efficacy. So this is a combination of both of those charts, a little abbreviated, but what I've also added is the duration. So this is the other factor you've got to consider when selecting a product. As Kim talked about, we went from our short acting to intermediate to long acting. These long acting products were actually designed to mimic 
our short acting twice a day or three times a day product dosing regimens. And so some of these products are effective for a duration of six to eight hours. Some go to 12, some even go up to 16 hours. And so we need to be able to make sure we have a product that lasts as long as they need it, the patient, but yet also doesn't last too long to potentially increase our ADRs. So we have a lot of products on the market and we have a lot of opportunities here to evaluate which one to utilize. So what we should use is a product that definitely provides efficacy, again, matching um, that efficacy with our patient symptoms, the dosage form. Do we need a liquid? Do we need a capsule that we can open feeds and place it on food? Do we need a tablet we can swallow, a capsule we can swallow? What is needed for our patient? And then of that dosage form, the kinetics, again, matching the duration, the release, what's best for our patient, and then our insurance coverage and cost. Several of these newer products can be $300 to $400 a month versus several of our older products have many generic products available and may be covered easily on insurance. Lastly, we want to think about our adherence. And so actually adolescents have the highest rate of non-adherence of about 50%. Adults have an non-adherence rate of about 30 and our children are actually less, only about 10 to 30, but that could also be because we've got someone likely giving them the medication. So once we do prescribe a product, we do need to monitor it. Um, with the stimulant, what's nice is you usually see a clinical effect in one to two days, very quickly. Um, unlike atomoxetine, it takes two to three weeks to see that benefit of efficacy. But we need to monitor our safety and efficacy parameters. We're going to continue to monitor our safety parameters of our stimulants, like always, insomnia, weight gain or weight loss. So we'll always monitor our weight. Um, we're going to look at our blood pressure, our heart rate. We're going to make sure we always look for any cardiac history before we do prescribe a stimulant product. But essentially, we would monitor this one month after initiation or change in therapy. And for the first year, the um, American Academy of Pediatrics recommends to monitor monthly until we have a consistent and optimal response by that patient. And then we can go out to every three months or so, um, maybe even seeing a patient annually or twice annually, typically twice annually. Most of the time we end up seeing them every three months. And again, that's to get your prescriptions um, because again, we're dealing with a controlled substance. Thanks so much for listening into today's episode from the 2020 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. It's features and content like this that make the ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting the place to learn and to take your practice to the next level. Be sure to join us in December for more great clinical content.